December 16, 1773, about 50 members of the Sons of Liberty, a colonial patriot group, boarded three ships anchored in Boston Harbor. Those ships, the Beaver, the Eleanor, and the Dartmouth, were carrying British tea from the English, uh, from the East India Company. Now, you should know that the East India Company had been doing that very thing for years. But, but that particular night, the Sons of Liberty, thinly disguised as Mohawk Indians, dumped 342 chests of British tea into the sea. You know it as the Boston Tea Party. Boston Tea Party has long been known as the first violent um, act in what would become the War for Independence or the American Revolution. You, you say, well, what was the issue? Didn't, didn't they like tea? I mean, it was up north. Maybe it was unsweetened. <laughs> no, that was not, that was not the problem. Uh, again, just a few years before, the colonists had purchased almost a million pounds of tea per year from this very same East India Company. But now they chose instead to smuggle it in from Holland. Why? Well, the American colonies had stopped buying British tea in protest of the Tea Act passed in May of that same year, 1773. Without going into much detail, the Tea Act was a perfect example of taxation without representation. It was viewed as British oppression. You could say the fury of the American colonies against British oppression um, fell on the chests of tea anchored in Boston Harbor. But the, but the real issue was, was taxes. You might also be interested to know that some historians suggest that it was the Tea Act of 1773 that transformed this nation to this very day into a coffee-drinking country instead of a tea-drinking one. Hallelujah. I share that with you uh, by way of introduction so that we can perhaps begin to understand the anger associated with the Jews of Jesus' day with what was called the poll tax or the head tax. It was the same kind of situation. As many of you perhaps know, the land of Palestine had become a Roman province in 6 BC. It was under Roman oppression and domination throughout the New Testament. Uh, Rome um, exercised their despised control and uh, oppression uh, over the Jews in a number of different ways to include Roman soldiers that were garrisoned right next door to the temple in the Antonia Fortress. But, but, but nothing was as oppressive as Roman taxation. Taxes were collected for about everything. If you were a fisherman going to go on the Sea of Galilee, you had to pay taxes to be able to do that and for your boat that you owned and for the nets and for whatever you carried out. There were customs taxes, there were sales taxes, there were income taxes and property taxes. But none, know this, none were more despised than the poll tax. You see, the poll tax was assessed simply because you existed. <laughs> I guess you breathed Roman air. A census would be taken and the tax assessed based on the census. In fact, the Greek word for tax was taken from the Latin sincere, from which we get our word Census. Remember when Jesus was born? Luke 2 says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the entire world. Why? Did he just want to know how many people were in his empire? Not exactly. It was for the purpose of assessing the poll tax, which came to Palestine in 6 AD. The Jews hated Roman occupation, and the full fury of their hatred fell on this particular tax. Think English tea. All right? In 6 AD, in fact, Judas of Galilee led an insurrection specifically against the poll tax. 
Uh, the, the Roman procurator, had, uh, governor, had, had, had taken a, a census for tax purposes, and, and it made Judas Hoppin mad. His rallying cry was that God was their only God and Lord, and therefore the poll tax should not be paid to Rome. We'll come back to that. The, the, the rebellion was quashed, and, and Judas was executed, but it, but it was this, on this zealous anti-Roman sentiment that the later zealot movement was built, which which began in earnest in 66 AD with the rebellion. That rebellion led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple four years later, 70 AD, uh, when the Roman general Titus uh, took Jerusalem. It's recorded that he killed over a million Jews through their bodies over the city wall, all because of a poll tax. Well, it's clear the Jews hated the Romans and they hated the poll tax. So that leads us, that's a little background to give us a little context to our text this morning in our continuing study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and following. Look at that with me. It says, then they, stop right there, who's, who's they? Well, it's the, go to the previous verse, and they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. Well, who, again, who's the they? We drop all the way up uh, to chapter 12, verse 1, and, and he began to speak to them. Well, again, who's the them? Well, we have to go all the way back to chapter 11, verse 27, and we see that Jesus and the disciples came to Jerusalem, and, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to challenge him and his authority. That's the they that carries all the way through to our text. This is a, an official delegation, if you will, from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. And they... Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, we'll talk about who they are in a minute, to him, to Jesus, in order to trap him with his words and a statement. They came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Isn't that special? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? He, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Right. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. They marveled greatly at him. Amazing, isn't it? You'd almost think that I purposely planned to cover this text on April 9th, the Sunday before April 15th. <laughs> Just thought I'd remind you. <laughs> We've all heard this text before, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God. And you look at this text and you might say, Jesus said, pay your taxes. So there you go. There's my sermon. Pay your taxes. And certainly Peter and, and Paul would later teach that very thing. Paul in Romans 13 said, every person is to be in subjection to the, the governing authorities, the government. Uh, for there is no authority except from God. He's the one that raises them up. And, and, and those which are, uh, uh, exist are established by God. Verse 5, therefore, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also lay, uh, pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God. That's what you're doing, paying taxes. Paying servants. Devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear, fear, honor, honor. So there you have it. It's a sermon. Pay your taxes. So this morning, we're going to take a little time out to go over Form 1040 and Schedules AC and SE. <laughs> Not exactly. Does this text 
teach that we should pay our taxes? Probably. Is that the primary teaching of the text? Probably not. You see, we we tend to focus on the first part, the, the Caesar part. But do we even see the second part? See, maybe Jesus is teaching in his answer. I want to remind you that Jesus is in the midst of his Passion Week. It's it's still Tuesday when all of the verbal battles are taking place. That, by the way, is day after tomorrow. You, you remember he began this particular week with three successive symbolic actions, the, the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday is today, and, and then the cleansing of the temple as tomorrow, the cursing of the fig tree Monday, Tuesday. And as a result, this delegation, the, the they, chief priests, elders, scribes, they, 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 they sent by the Sanhedrin, they come to confront him, ask him by what? What authority are you doing these things? Remember, Jesus answered their question with a question. It was a question they couldn't answer. John's baptism, was it from heaven or, or, or from, from men? They were caught. If we say from heaven, then, they'll say, then he'll say, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you believe him? If, if they say from men, well, we're afraid of the people because the people saw John as a prophet. And so they refused to answer. We don't know. Now, now remember, I suggested Jesus actually answered their question with his question. John told you who I was. Did you believe him? Of course you didn't. Neither will I tell you. Well, he then launches into a parable that we looked at last week. He, he pegs these religious leaders, and, and, and they knew it. God sent messenger after messenger, servant after servant, prophet after prophet, and you either beat them or killed them, and now God has sent his own son, and you're going to kill him too. They were incensed, and they looked for ways to seize him. This is full-scale war. But, but we've noted that Jesus keeps winning the battles because <laughs> he's in charge. He's in charge of the whole thing. Uh, so religious leaders, they launch another attack, actually three attacks, if you will. Those attacks come in the form of three questions from three different groups, from the Pharisees and the Herodians and the, and, and, and the Sadducees who question about the resurrection next week, and, and then from the scribes. So we're going to look at these over the next um, few weeks, beginning with this one that we just read. It comes from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now notice, they try to do to Jesus what he had just done to them. Namely, they ask him a question they think... He, he can't answer. It'll get him into trouble no matter how he answers. Jesus, baptism of John from God or men? They couldn't answer. Poll tax. Do we pay it or not? It's the same kind of challenge, the same kind of horns of a dilemma question. But Jesus, he wins again. He's in charge. And in the process, he teaches us something about taxes. Maybe something a little more a little deeper than paying your taxes. Let me give you the outline as we jump into the text. We're going to see the opponent's question in verses 13 to 15 and then Jesus' answer. But then I want to, we need to answer the question, what did Jesus actually say? Pay your taxes, is that that it? Or is there more? Start with their loaded question as we've seen this, the delegation sent from the Sanhedrin was out for the count. He had nailed them. It's obvious Jesus at this point is a formidable foe and not be easily trapped. So this time they send another group, Pharisees and Herodians, to, to approach Jesus with another question. Their plan, we read, is to trap him and with what they said. They asked him some, a, a, a trick question, try to get him to stumble, to discredit himself. In fact, Luke 20 uh, on this parallel passage, speaking of this event, says, 
that they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that if they caught him, they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They were trying in this text to trap him so they could hand him over to Pontius Pilate. It's a political attack. That's why the Herodians, by the way, are there. Let's look at each of these attackers. First, there were these Pharisees. We've seen them before in Mark, always, by the way, opposing Jesus. And in fact, these two groups, Pharisees, Herodians, had teamed up before in Mark chapter 3 to to destroy Jesus. Uh, Here they are again. The Pharisees were the legalists of the day. We're not sure exactly where they came from. Many think they were the descendants of the Hasidim, whose name means pious ones, came about in the second century B.C. But by this time, first century A.D., the Pharisees were very much in the mainstream of Jewish life. They, they, they made a point of, of being noticed and, and, and admired. That's what it was all about. You see, the word Pharisee literally means separated one, and that's exactly what they were. They were separated and superior to everyone, certainly common people, not just dirty Gentiles like you and me, but even above common everyday Jewish people whom, upon whom they looked with disdain. After, for example, after leaving the, the market or any public gathering, they'd perform a ceremonial washing as soon as possible to purify themselves of any contamination in, in the event that they touched someone unclean like you. Admission to the group, strictly controlled, application was made, followed by a probationary period in which the the applicant is examined to determine his ability to follow the ritual law. Don't miss that. That was what was important to them. Man-made rules, man-made rituals that made them feel superior. This set of rules have been written over the centuries as commentaries on the law of Moses. were known collectively as the tradition of the elders. Remember, we've, we've talked about that. This was a self-righteous community, legalistic isolationists who had no regard nor respect for anyone outside their group. They thought themselves super spiritual, and God looked upon them very approvingly because of their, well, because of their made-up brand of holiness. And so when Jesus, God himself, shows up, he opposed their man-made religion, and it infuriated them. Next, we meet the Herodians. History doesn't tell us much about this group. In fact, they're not mentioned uh, anywhere outside the New Testament. We derive much of what we know about them from their name. Just as Christians are followers of Christ, Herodians, we surmise, were followers of Herod. Know that. This was not a religious group. They were a political group sympathetic to the Herods. Now, the Herods were the descendants of of Herod the Great. They were Edomites. They weren't even Jews. And they were placed in power over Palestine by Rome. That means that they were loyal to Roman occupation. That's their power, their positions depended on it. And understandably, they were hated, despised by the Jews. So that's, that's the picture. Pharisees who hate the Romans, Herodians who support the Romans, talk, coming together, talk about an unholy alliance. These guys would not normally even have lunch together. They hated each other. They were on opposite ends of the spectrum, spiritually and, and politically, even philosophically. And yet here we see them coming together, one group, partners in crime, be like Democrats and Republicans crossing the aisle because of their opposition to a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, is the idea. 
The, the, the one thing that these two polarized groups could agree on was their opposition to Jesus. He was espousing, you see, a different kind of kingdom, and that would mean the end of their own, their political kingdom and their spirit, supposed spiritual kingdom. Pharisees, Herodians then, hating each other, band together to fight a common foe named Jesus. The very question that they asked him would have been, would have been the basis of fierce debate between these two groups. I mean, one group, obviously, would have been okay with the tax, uh, uh, probably helped pay them. The others would have been deeply offended, deeply resented it. So, so they asked Jesus the question, what about the, the poll tax? They couldn't even agree. It would have been a no-win situation. It would, it would either end in blasphemy or treason. You see, this is their hope. It's why they came together. If he said, no taxes to Rome, he would be seen as an insurrectionist. I mean, there was Judas of Galilee. Now we have Jesus of Galilee. <laughs> it would have angered the Herodians. They would have marched over to the Roman garrison right next door, remember? And they would have had him arrested and put to death. Or if he said yes to taxes, he would have been seen as sympathetic to Rome, alienated the crowds and the Pharisees who hated Rome. He could not answer this question without irritating somebody, but he did because he's in charge. Jesus, lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? <laughs> not actually how they started, is it? Teacher, we know that you're truthful and, and teach the way of God in truth, and you don't defer to anyone. You're not partial. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax or not? This is just a, a setup. They approach him with flattery, saying things that they personally did not believe. They're being liars. We know they're lying, hoping to disarm him, lower his defenses so they could spring the trap. Didn't work. In fact, don't miss this. They found out that what was intended for lying flattery was actually true. Everything they said about him was true. He, he, he was a teacher, a rabbi, one whose teaching should have been accepted and respected. He was truthful. More, more literally, he was true. Everything about him was true. He was a man of deepest integrity, by, by his very nature, true. He also did teach the way of God in truth, contrary to their abusive religion. And it was, it was also true, he deferred to no one. He was partial uh, he was not partial to any, meaning he didn't regard the face of anything, he didn't change his message depending on who you were. He spoke truth, no matter who you were, which means he wouldn't make a good politician. He, it's, it's not that he, he didn't care about people. He did. After all, he came to give his life for people. But listen to this. He also cared about truth, knowing that truth alone is good for people. Listen to me. We live in a society and in a culture where people are becoming increasingly incensed with Christians as being bigoted and racial and intolerant and we think we're the only ones that are right. We must stick to the truth because we know that the truth is best for people. They oppose Jesus for the same thing. Leads us to the second point, Jesus' answer, verses 15 to 17. In a masterful way, Jesus answered this no-win question in a way that caused all who heard him, including these Pharisees and Herodians, to be amazed, walk away, tail tucked between their legs, amazed. Now, we're all familiar with what Jesus said. We've heard it quoted many times before. I'm just not 
sure that we fully grasp what it means. First, he exposes the questioners for what they were, fakes. Why why are you testing me? Cut the flattery. I can see right through your hypocrisy. Then he says, show me the coin used for the, the poll tax. Now, stop right there. Let me tell you a little bit more about this despised poll tax. It was an it was an annual tax, think April 15th, an annual tax that, that amounted to one day's pay, that might be nice, a, 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 a denarius, one day's wage for the common labor. In fact, this was how this particular tax was required to be paid. You see, there were several coins minted during this time, some by Rome, some even by the temple, but you were required to pay the poll tax with the Roman Denarius. Why is that a problem? Well, the Roman denarius was a silver coin that had the image of the current Caesar engraved on each side with an inscription. That's critically important. In this case, the Caesar was Tiberius. On the front, with his picture, the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The inscription on the back with the emperor seated on the throne designated him high priest. You have to understand as far as the Jews were concerned by paying the poll tax with this particular coin was participating in an act of idolatry. Are you starting to understand how much the Jews hated this tax? But please notice Jesus doesn't have a denarius. But they did. The tax that they so abhorred, because it was paid by a coin which they so abhorred, they had. (laughs) It was necessary for commerce. The issue, you see, was that they didn't want to to pay a a day's wages. They, They hated the tax, but they'd use the idolatrous coin. They were the ones who were the hypocrites. Show me the coin, Jesus said, and someone flipped him a denarius, and he held it up and asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness is the word icon, from which we get a word icon? Whose icon is on the coin? They answered rightly, well, it's Caesar's, to which Jesus responded with those well-known, oft-quoted words you heard, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, and you can almost see him flipping the coin back, question answered, case closed. In fact, they were amazed. Isn't this guy something? We can't catch him with his words. He answered in a way that satisfied the Herodians and shut the mouths of the Pharisees. I mean, what more could we say? Pay your taxes. Brilliant. Let's stand for closing prayer. Don't. For all your life, you've heard this passage used to teach something like this. Pay your taxes, or maybe if you want to be spiritual, pay your taxes to Caesar and your tithes to God. The government gets their share and... Uh, God gets his share, and I get to keep the rest. Which brings us to our third point. What exactly did Jesus say here anyway? I want to remind you that this was his last week. It was his passion week. And Jesus never said anything that wasn't full of meaning, and he certainly wasn't going to do it on this his last week. Pay your taxes and your tithes. Obey the government. Obey God. Is that it? Could this passage be used to teach things like pay your taxes, obey the government? Okay, fine. 
In fact, probably so. You could probably do that. This passage and others like it teach us that as followers of Jesus, we are submissive to governing authorities. We're also submissive to God, which is a higher authority. We obey in as much as what the governing authorities tell us to do doesn't contradict the higher authority, which means civil disobedience, not, no place for Christians. Just so you know. So, those truths are contained here. Paul and Peter will later teach us that very thing. So, as Christians, we should pay our taxes and obey the government. So, mail your checks. It's Friday. Mine are already written. I'm not mailing them until Monday. You can wait till Monday if you want to. They're not getting it a day early. Someone said amen. <laughs> But is that all that Jesus said? I don't think so. Look at it with me. Held up the coin. Whose image is this? Caesar. Right. Got it right. 100%. Then he said, give to Caesars, that which is Caesars, that which bears his image. It's his. Give it to him. Not only that, he... He was asked about paying taxes, and Jesus changed the word to render, which literally means give back or pay back. The denarius bore the Caesar's image. It's his. Give it back to him. Give to Caesar that which bears his image. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, give to God, which is his, that which bears his image. What might that be? Well, why don't we start, I'll just start easy. Why don't we start in Romans chapter 1? There we read, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What that verse is telling us is that all of creation, the earth and all that is in it, the the stars, the planets, the galaxies, in fact, the entire universe, all display God's existence, his presence, his divine attributes, his power, his nature. There is a sense in which creation itself puts on display The glory and image of God. You have to look at all of this and you have to willfully look at it all and say, I don't believe. You you must. Do do you know that to be an atheist is a willful decision. I I look at it and I deny it. You only have to look at creation to see that there's a God. He declares him and puts his glory on display. Psalm 19 says it this way, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And since he created it and since it bears his glory in a sense, his image, it causes the psalmist to declare further in Psalm 89, he made it all. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you founded them. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, that which bears his image. Here you go, Caesar. Here's a coin. I'll go buy a cup of coffee. Render to God that which bears his glory. The very universe displays his being. He owns it all, which means by the way that he owns all of the puny Caesars, all the governments, and all the coins that they might collect. All his. All of a sudden, maybe it isn't just taxes that belong to the government. Tithe belongs to God, I get everything else. Maybe we're beginning to realize it all belongs to God. It's all His. 
I'm just a steward. I'm a manager, and I will give an account for how I have managed God's resources. Everything that is allowed to pass through these tiny fingers, it's His. I don't own any of it. And so I render to God that which is God's. He gets it all. He owns everything. So we render, give back everything to Him. You say, okay, good enough. Sounds so big, so ethereal, so out there. Let me ask you another question. Can you perhaps think of anything else specifically that bears the image of God that He wants back? Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. Just in case you didn't get it, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Men and women were created in the image of God. You bear his image. When Jesus finished with the denarius, that coin and flipped it back to its owner, he could well have pointed to them, he could have well pointed to us and render to God the things that are God's. God owns you. And his mark of ownership is seen in his image within us, marred though it may be, through sin, in our sin, we rebelled against our maker and our owner, and he wants it back. So he became our redeemer. That's what the word redeem means, to buy back. He did what was necessary to buy us back, to recreate us in his image, the image of God, and throughout our Christian lives, we were continually being transformed into the image of his son. Paul understood that truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, for you have been bought. If you know Jesus, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in whose image you were created and recreated. Glorify God in your body. It's not yours. Render to God the things that are God's. Questioners were, went away amazed. They left him alone. I'm convinced that they did not fully understand what he said because if they did understand, it would have infuriated them all the more. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar, to God that which is God's. Pay your taxes, pay your tithes, obey the government, obey God. Okay, fine, do that. But it is so much more than that. Jesus says, give God everything. He owns it anyway to include your very lives He demands nothing less than total surrender. Render to God the things that are God's. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty, merciful God, Father, Creator, Master, Owner, Ruler, the one to whom we will give an account, the one who has redeemed us and bought us back and is in the process of transforming us into the image of his his very son. 
how easy it is for us to claim for us that which is around us and our puny little empires and forget you own it all. Help us, I pray, to render to you, to render it all to you. In Christ's name.